This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is humble submission to God. In the first half, LeGrand R. Curtis, Jr. shares his address, humbly combining heart and mind. Then in the second half, Rebecca Schroeder speaks on being in tune, minimizing interference beats. It is wonderful to be back at BYU today. I was a student here in the early 1970s, and during that time some important things happened here, including the construction of this building, the appointment of Dallin H. Oaks as president of the university, the building of the Provo Temple, and Lavelle Edwards being hired as the head football coach and taking his team to BYU's first bowl game, the 1974 Fiesta Bowl. During that time, several important things also happened in my life, including receiving my mission call and serving a mission, getting engaged and married, becoming a father, and graduating with a degree in economics. I would like to speak today about another important thing that happened to me during my time as a student here. There is an interesting connection in the scriptures between the heart and the mind. Consider this verse from an early revelation to the prophet Joseph Smith concerning the process of knowledge being revealed. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. From this verse it is clear that the process of revelation can include both ideas to the mind and feelings to our hearts. In the next section, the Lord further describes this process. Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought that will cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. These verses once again speak of the mind as well as feelings that are manifest inside us, in this case, the burning in the bosom. This expression is reminiscent of the passage in Luke chapter 24 where one of the disciples who walked with the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus said to the other disciple with whom he shared that experience, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Both passages, whether referring to feelings in the heart or bosom, are referring to the, quote, workings of the Spirit, end of quote, that we can feel within us as part of revelation. The prophet Mormon, in describing the revelation to include the small plates of Nephi with his compiled record, said this, And I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me, according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come, wherefore he worketh in me, to do according to his will. King Benjamin's discourse also provides insights into the interaction of the heart and the mind. In the first verse of his sermon, King Benjamin urges his listeners to, quote, 
Open your ears that you may hear and your hearts that you may understand and your minds that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to your view. I find it intriguing that the people were urged to open their hearts to understand. We usually think of understanding as being associated with the brain. But one of the lessons of this sermon is that spiritual things are understood with the heart. That is, by feelings of the Spirit within us. But the brain is not left out of the process. The people of King Benjamin were also urged to open their minds that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to their view. Hence, to learn the things that King Benjamin had to teach that day, the people needed to have both the heart and the mind fully engaged. One of the important things that happened to me during my days as a student of BYU was coming to appreciate what can happen as the mind and the heart, or spirit, work together. It was here that I learned the truth of the words taught by Elder Hugh B. Brown. Men live best when they neither deny themselves the verdict of the head nor the intimations of the heart, but seek a working harmony of both. My appreciation of that principle happened for me here in a variety of ways. One place that it happened was in the classes that I took. During my first semester at BYU, I took a Book of Mormon class from C. Terry Warner, the director of the BYU Honors Program and a philosophy professor. It was a small class, and Brother Warner's approach was simple. In preparation for each class session, we read some assigned chapters from the Book of Mormon and came to class ready to discuss them. During each class session, Brother Warner asked what insights we had had during our reading, and he also shared insights that he had had concerning those chapters. The result was electrifying. The Spirit was very strong as bright minds and willing hearts combined in discussing the teachings and applications of those Book of Mormon chapters. I experienced the inspired learning that takes place as the heart and the mind are both open and engaged, as encouraged by King Benjamin. That type of learning continued throughout my time at BYU. In my last semester, I took a religion class taught by Bruce C. Hafen. The class was entitled Your Religious Problems and was patterned after a class Elder Hafen had taken when he was a student at BYU. Each student in the class made a presentation with respect to a religious problem of her or his choosing. In addition to discussing the subject as a group, each of us wrote our own brief response with respect to the issue presented. Some of the issues raised were very challenging, and solutions often did not come easily or quickly. Each of us in the class needed both open hearts and minds to analyze the issues with faith. I got to see the process described in Doctrine and Covenants, section 9, verses 7 to 9, put into practice as we studied things out in our minds and prayerfully sought the Spirit for confirmation and further direction. I was impressed with the intellects of Elder Hafen and the class members, but what I remember most is the Spirit that I felt surrounding what we did in that class. What I experienced in that class and in other classes at BYU fits neatly within this statement penned several years later with respect to the ideal BYU experience. Quote, 
A spiritually strengthening education warms and enlightens students by the bright fire of their teacher's faith while enlarging their minds with knowledge. This combination of the spirit and the mind was not limited to the classes that I took. These are the notes that I took of a devotional talk by Neil A. Maxwell in 1971, not yet a general authority of the Church. Both his intellect and deep spirituality soared in that talk. While here, I also heard the words of Truman Madsen, Hugh Nibley, Dallin Oaks, Ann Madsen, Rex Lee, Robert Thomas, Carolyn Pearson, Chauncey Riddle, and a host of others whose powerful intellects and devotion to the Lord challenged my thinking and showed me how the wonderful principles of the gospel called for my very best thinking and, more importantly, my very best living. My association with fellow students did the same. My days at BYU included the blessing of getting to know many students whose commitment to the Lord and serious academic preparation paved the way for their service in the Church, in their families, and in organizations around the country and the world. Following their training, they held important positions at leading universities, businesses, law firms, and other institutions. That service has made the world a better place, but it also blessed me personally to see their powerful combination of mind and spirit. I saw in them what Elder Hafen once referred to as, quote, the healthy relationship between the head and the heart, end of quote. The friends of whom I speak embody what is now stated as the aims of a Brigham Young University education. Quote, a BYU education should be spiritually strengthening, intellectually enlarging, and character building, leading to a lifelong, to lifelong learning and service. Last year, Elder Neil L. Anderson eulogized one of our mutual BYU friends, the late Elder Bruce D. Porter, in this way. I first met Bruce when we were students at Brigham Young University. He was one of the best and the brightest. After receiving his doctoral degree from Harvard University emphasizing Russian affairs, Bruce's thinking and writing brought prominence that could have derailed him. But the wealth and praise of the world never clouded his view. His loyalty was to his Savior, Jesus Christ, to his eternal companion, Susan, to his children and grandchildren. Similar things could be said of other friends from my BYU days, and I acknowledge that such associations and such intellectual and spiritual experiences can and do happen at other places. I personally treasure my friendships and my experiences from my University of Michigan years and from other times in my life. While I rejoice in what can happen as the spirit and the mind are joined in serious study, there is a caution that all of us who love the things of the mind need to take very seriously. In raising this caution, let me start with these words of Jacob from 2 Nephi chapter 9. Oh, that cunning plan of the evil one! Oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men! When they are learned, they think they are wise, and hearken not unto the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. 
as we rejoice in the blessing of being able to think and to learn, it is imperative that we never lose our sense of humility before God. The greatest thinking in the world is foolishness, and it profits nothing if the thinker does not hearken to the counsel of God. In his talk referenced earlier, King Benjamin put all of this in perspective. Quote, Believe in God. Believe that He is and that He created all things, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that He has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. The fact that man does not comprehend all that God can comprehend should make us deeply humble before Him and willing to follow His counsel in all things. It should make us anxious to have the Spirit enlighten our minds and enhance our understanding. I think with sadness of a scholarly friend who stopped coming to church because he did not find the discussions in our church meetings to be, quote, interesting, end of quote. His focus had moved away from the combination of the mind and the spirit. Perhaps he had fallen into the trap which, of which Jacob warned. One of my memories of BYU is a lecture that I attended given by Truman G. Madsen, a BYU philosophy professor. He told of having one of his colleagues, Hugh Nibley, excitedly come to his office with his Book of Mormon in hand, turned to Jacob's sermon in 2 Nephi chapter 9. His focus was on these words from verse 42, quote, The learned and they that are rich who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they are they whom God despiseth. Brother Nibley, one of the most learned people ever to teach on this campus, let Brother Madsen know that he was deeply struck by the scriptural message that God despises those who are puffed up because of their learning. And he marveled at Jacob's use of the word despiseth, and as one who loved learning was determined never to be puffed up because of that learning. In his writings, Brother Nibley said of this statement by Jacob, quote, that must be the all-time put-down, end of quote. This part of 2 Nephi chapter 9 requires more review because it not only contains that warning but also a way forward for all of us. In verse 41, Jacob teaches that Christ is the keeper of the gate to the kingdom of heaven and that there is no other gate. Then comes verse 42, which I quoted in part earlier. Here is the whole verse. And whoso knocketh, to him will he open. And the wise and the learned and they that are rich who were puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they are they whom he despiseth, and save they shall cast these things away, and consider themselves fools before God, and come down in the depths of humility, he will not open unto them. The way forward is to consider ourselves fools before God and to come down in the depths of humility. Considering ourselves fools before God is to remember King Benjamin's teaching referenced earlier, that God comprehends everything and, and that we at our very best only comprehend a little. That helps us stay in the depths of humility and recognize the need for His wisdom in our lives. 
With that humility, as lovers of learning, we can rejoice in another verse from this chapter, quote, but to be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God. In our efforts to maintain the humility that we must have, we are blessed to have the examples of those who lead us. For the last almost 14 years, it has been my blessing to go on assignments at various times as the junior companion to 15 different apostles, including all three members of the new First Presidency announced today. I have always had deep respect for the senior leaders of this Church, but after having watched them close up, I must say they're even better than I thought they were. And one of the ways that they are so good is the sincere humility that they have. My first assignment with a member of the Twelve was in 2004 when I was assigned to go to a state conference with Elder Joseph B. Worthlin. I nervously picked him up at his home. As we were driving to the state conference, I tried to tell him how honored I was to be in his company. I said something like, Elder Worthlin, I am deeply honored to be with you. He responded by saying, Brother Curtis, I am deeply honored to be with you. I thought to myself, I didn't explain that very well. So I summoned my courage and I tried again. Elder Worthlin, I said, I am just an ordinary member of the Church, and it is an extraordinary experience for someone like me to be with an apostle. He responded, I am an ordinary member of the Church, and it is extraordinary for me to be with you. He seemed not to understand what I was trying to express. Now, at the conference, he acted in every way like an apostle. He was mighty in declaring God's word, but he seemed incapable of seeing any significance in himself. At his funeral, his son said, When I contemplate the legacy that Dad left his family and the church, his humility stands out. Dad just never saw himself as anyone special. When President Monson ordained him an apostle, he prophetically declared to Dad, Your humility will endear you to the people. And so it has. Another outstanding example of humility is our new prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. His credentials as a scholar and a heart surgeon are extremely impressive. In addition to his medical degree, he also has a Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota, and his medical research greatly expanded the ability of medical science to prolong life through open-heart surgery. He was the first to perform open-heart surgery here in the state of Utah, which was only the third state to ever do that kind of surgery. During his medical career, he received great professional recognition and lectured all over the world. But during that career, he was also faithful to the Lord and his church and took on small and large church callings as they came to him. He served as a stake president, general Sunday school president, and then regional representative while still conducting research and practicing medicine. As recounted by Elder Neil L. Anderson at the most recent general conference, during that busy time as a surgeon and church leader, President Nelson also humbly heeded the invitation of President Spencer W. Kimball and associated promptings of the Spirit to learn Mandarin Chinese. That humility led to opportunities to form associations with important people in China and bless the people of that land 
and benefit the work of the Church. Another great example of humility is President Henry B. Eyring. President Eyring loves learning and excelled as a scholar. He received a Ph.D. from Harvard University and accepted an appointment to be a professor at Stanford University, where he taught business classes and conducted important research. From there, he went on to be president of Ricks College, which later became BYU-Idaho. While in that position, he heard the president of the Church, President Ezra Tapp Benson, give a talk in general conference in which he encouraged members to get out of debt, including paying off mortgages. President Eyring's business knowledge gave him reasons why, given the then-current economic conditions, it might not have been a good time to pay off the mortgage that he and his wife had on their house. However, their humility in following the direction of the prophet of God gave them the will to do it. Although they were not sure that they could do it, once they started trying, an opportunity materialized for the Eyring's to sell an asset that had been hard to sell, and then used the proceeds to pay off their mortgage. In the October 2010 General Conference, after recounting how that happened, President Irene said the following, A person might say that was only a coincidence, but our mortgage was paid off, and our family still listens for any word in a prophet's message that might be sent to tell what we should do to find the security and peace God wants for us. A study of President Eyring's life shows that humility exemplified over and over. In his biography, I Will Lead You Along, you will find example after example of President Eyring humbly following the counsel of church leaders. Chapter titles include, quote, Follow the Brethren, end of quote, and, quote, Hearken to the Lord's Servant, end of quote. Those whose direction he followed included many senior general authorities, but also stake presidents, bishops, and a home teacher. His life story also shows many instances of humbly following impressions of the Holy Spirit that came to him. I have seen that same humility in other senior leaders of the Church, including President Oaks, who was announced today as the other counselor in the First Presidency. They are strong, powerful leaders, but they are also humble, gracious, and regularly seek the counsel of those around them. Many of these apostles have advanced degrees from prestigious schools and other significant accomplishments, but those degrees and those accomplishments do not keep them from being humble. To the contrary, they are, like Alma, quote, humble servants of God, end of quote. The prime example of humility, of course, is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a place of great preeminence in the pre-earth life. He created this and other worlds, yet he accepted fully his Father's plan for our salvation and voluntarily came to this earth to live and minister in the most humble of circumstances. In all that he did, he sought only the glory of the Father and to see the Father's will done. He resisted every temptation of Satan, including the temptation to receive honor and glory. He committed no sin, but humbly accepted the responsibility to suffer the incomparable pain required to pay for the sins of all mankind, including your sins and my sins. 
He humbly submitted to the will of his Father in doing all that was required so that he could redeem us. He descended below all things so that he could accomplish his remarkable atonement. Of him I bear my witness. From experiences that I have had in my life, including experiences on this campus, I know that he is the Christ, our Redeemer, and that his atonement is real and effective. I am grateful for the spirit that he bestows upon us. I am grateful for the minds and the hearts that he has granted to us and the patience that he has with us as we learn grace by grace. I bear testimony of him and wish you the best in your journey to humbly combine heart and mind in his service. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is humble submission to God. We've just heard from LeGrand R. Curtis, Jr. After the break, we'll return with Rebecca Schroeder for Being in Tune, Minimizing Interference Beats. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is humble submission to God. Next is Rebecca Schroeder, Acquisitions Librarian and Department Chair of the Material Acquisitions Department in the BYU Harold B. Lee Library at the time of this address, titled Being in Tune, Minimizing Interference Beats. March 20th of this year was a beautiful day. It was warm and the sun was shining. Some of the trees had started to bud and early blooms were visible. I had been anticipating this day with great excitement and a good deal of apprehension. From the time I received a phone call three months earlier asking if I would play the organ at one of the Provo City Center Temple dedication sessions, I never dreamed I would have a chance to serve in this capacity for I knew there were scores of talented, accomplished organists in our temple district, and I was also keenly aware of my own inadequacy. Surprise and shock were some of the feelings I had when I got the call, but in the few seconds it took me to stammer out an acceptance of this assignment, I felt my Heavenly Father's love, and even though I was very nervous, I sensed that this was one of His tender mercies. I was to have a similar experience to one that my beautiful paternal grandmother, Ethel Taylor Robinson, had had. And this created a sense of connection to her I had not felt before. I never met her as she died in her early thirties, but I knew of her and her many talents. My home teacher made sure of that. He repeatedly told me what a wonderful musician she was and how much she was loved and missed by our community. In October 1927, she directed a state choir that sang at the dedication of the Mesa, Arizona Temple. Although four of the songs she performed with her choir in that dedication were different from the ones I played in the Provo City Center Temple dedication, we both performed the Hosanna Anthem. Realizing that we would both perform the same song in a temple of the Lord almost 90 years apart, was a very sweet experience. 
I had other sweet experiences while our choir prepared and rehearsed. Choir members shared their testimonies and tender feelings about the temple, the gospel, and our Savior, both in words and song. Everyone was focused on offering his or her very best to the Lord. In my personal practices, I often felt inadequate and worried when I thought about performing in the celestial room just a few feet away from the Lord's apostles and in front of millions of viewers. I tried to calm myself with the feelings that if I put the time into my practice, the Lord would help me. I therefore practiced every day. The footwork with the organ pedals was my biggest challenge. I drilled the arpeggios and foot crossings over and over and over and over, slowly at first, and then I would attempt to speed them up to the performance tempo. Some repetitions went well, and I thought, I can do this. But the very next time, I would land on a note just adjacent to the one I was aiming for. So I would try again. One day, as I was going through this process, I remembered something I had learned in an acoustics class many years ago when I thought I wanted to be a music teacher. The thought that came into my mind at this time is the very subject I would like to speak about today. I remembered learning about sound waves and their frequencies. I'm sure there were some more in-depth physics I was supposed to learn and remember from that class. But what came to my mind four decades later as I struggled to land on the right note was the effect of sound waves with different frequencies when they were heard at the same time. Let me illustrate with a rudimentary explanation. When something vibrates, sound is produced. These vibrations, called longitudinal waves, have high and low pressure areas and, when diagrammed, look like symmetrical wavy lines. The frequency is the measurement of the number of cycles a sound wave makes in a second and determines the pitch of the sound. A pure tone is a sound wave with a single frequency. When two pure tones with the same frequency are sounded together, their sound waves are the same. They are matched, and the tone you hear is the same pitch and sounds in unison. When two tones with different frequencies are sounded together, their sound waves are not in sync. And if we were to graph the waves, we could see how the variance between the two waves grows. If the two frequencies are different but fairly close, instead of a unison sound, we hear a beating sound, often described as a wobbly or a wah-wah-wah sound. These interference beats will decrease as the difference in frequency between the two sounds is reduced. The beating sounds will altogether disappear when the frequencies are matched and the sounds are in tune. As I was practicing, I thought about how these interference beats sounded when the difference in frequencies were only marginally off and how the dissonance increased the further apart they were. I thought how wonderful it would be if, as I was performing, the Spirit would cause the listeners to hear the right note and their ears to hear a sound with identical frequency. 
In my wishful thinking, I wondered how close the pedal notes I played would have to be to the precise one the composer had in mind to be heard in harmony with the other notes I was playing. As I drove home from practice that day, I kept thinking about sound waves and frequencies, not just about the music I was practicing, but how the attributes of sound could apply to me and my efforts to be more like our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. If we were to represent our Heavenly Father, His qualities, His attributes, His thoughts and His actions as a sound wave with a single frequency, we would hear a pure tone. If we added Jesus Christ as a second sound wave to the two tones, would have the same frequencies and would be in tune. Jesus tells us, I am in the Father and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. We could say they are on the same wavelength. What would happen if we were to add our own sound wavelength to that of our Heavenly Father's? Would there be minimal beat interference, or would the variance be a greater dissonance? In these illustrations, the sound waves start at the same point, and depending on the difference in frequency, the sounds are either in unison or they are out of tune. In the pre-existence, we were all one with our Father, and we supported His plan, a plan that would give us the opportunity to become like Him. During the war in heaven, we were still one with Him, and we fought for His plan. But just as there are many reasons musical instruments can get out of tune, many of our life choices can get us out of tune with our Heavenly Father. The scriptures in 3 Nephi describe the devastation that happened in the land after the crucifixion of the Savior. There were great storms, tempests, and terrible thunder. There were sharp lightnings, earthquakes, fires, and whirlwinds. Cities sunk to the depths of the sea. The great and terrible destruction deformed the land. During this major upheaval, many of the inhabitants were killed. Once the devastation ended and the darkness that had lasted for three days dispersed, Jesus Christ visited the people who were spared. During his several visits, he ministered to and taught the people. He told them to search the scriptures, ponder his words, and pray for understanding. He healed their sick and blessed their little ones. He instituted the sacrament. He expounded all things unto them, and many saw and heard unspeakable things which could not be written. Before he left them, he asked, Therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. They took his directive to heart. It didn't happen overnight, but it wasn't too many years later that all were converted unto the Lord, having all things in common. With their conversion, they were able to live in a society where there were no contentions or disputations. They had become like our Savior. Their sound waves were in tune with his and stayed in sync for two centuries. Who were these people, and what can we learn from them to help us be on the same wavelength as our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. Their story gives us four clear directions or guidelines we can follow to be more in unison with our Creators. 
If we follow the Nephite example, we will grow more in tune. But like everything in life, each has its opposite, which means if we do the reverse, we grow more out of tune. In 3 Nephi chapter 10, verse 12, we learn who these people were. It was the more righteous part of the people who were saved, and it was they who received the prophets and stoned them not. And it was they who had not shed the blood of the saints who were spared. From this scripture, we learn about the first way we can follow the Nephite example to be more in tune with our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, and that is to receive the prophets and stone them not. Just last month, we had the opportunity to raise our hand and sustain our prophets. Raising our hand is easy, and sometimes we do it without really thinking about what it means. To receive the prophets and stone them not, we have to do more than casually raise our hand. We need to follow President Russell M. Nelson's teachings and sustain our prophets by honoring them, standing behind them, defending their good names, and striving to carry out their instructions. He also taught that we should pray for them. Another way we can receive the prophets and stone them not is to love them. President Eyring, in his October 2014 address, talked about the feelings of love we get for the prophet. He said, The love we feel is far more than hero worship or the feelings we sometimes have of admiring heroic figures. It is a gift from God. With it, you will receive more easily the gift of confirming revelation when he speaks in his office as the Lord's prophet. The love you feel is the love the Lord has for whoever is his spokesman. That is not easy to feel continually because the Lord often asks his prophets to give counsel that is hard for people to accept. The enemy of our souls will try to lead us to take offense, to doubt the prophet's calling from God. This last sentence gives us a glimpse of ways we may stone the prophets. Sometimes they have to call us to repentance and tell us hard things. As Carol McConkie tells us in her October 2014 address, uh, sometimes the words they use may seem, quote, unreasonable, inconvenient, and uncomfortable. And according to the world standards, following the prophet may be unpopular, politically incorrect, or socially unacceptable. But following the prophet is always right. Unquote. When we choose to take offense or rationalize that the teachings of our prophets don't really apply to us in our unique circumstances or doubt their call is from God, we stone them. But when we follow their words, love them, and pray for them, we receive them. Our lives are more like that of the Nephites, and we are more in harmony with our Savior and Heavenly Father. Following the model of the Nephites after Christ visited and taught them, we learn a second way we can be in tune with our Heavenly Father. Do not allow contention. In 4th Nephi we read, And it came to pass in the thirty and sixth year the people were all converted unto the Lord upon all the face of the land, both Nephites and Lamanites, and there were no contentions and disputations among them, and every man did deal justly one with another. We are told that the Nephites had no contentions because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. 
There were no envyings, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness, and surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. There were no robbers, nor murderers, neither were there Lamanites, nor any manner of ites, but they were in one, the children of Christ, and heirs to the kingdom of God. They were in one, the children of Christ. To me, this sounds like some very beautiful music with everyone in tune with Christ. Alma at the Waters of Mormon commanded his people that there should be no contention one with another, but that they should look forward with one eye, having one faith and one baptism, having their hearts knit together in unity and in love, one towards another. His followers followed his teachings, and they had the blessings of unity in their lives. Contrast the unity and peace of Alma's people with the contention among the Nephites after the chief judge and governor of the land, Pahoran, died. The scriptures describe this as a time of serious difficulty and serious contention as they decided which of Pahoran's sons should have the judgment seat. The people chose Pahoran II to fill the judgment seat. But amidst the contention caused by his brother Piankai, when he rebelled against the people and tried to destroy their liberty, Pahoran was murdered, and another brother, Pekumani, was appointed to take his place. The contention in the land had weakened the Nephites, and when the Lamanites saw this, they came to battle with an army of innumerable men. Now the Nephites, because of so much contention and so much difficulty in their government, had not kept sufficient guards in the land, which allowed the Lamanite leader Coriantumr to march with his army into the land of Zarahemla, slay everyone that opposed him, and take the city. The contention among the Nephites at this time divided them as a society, separated them from God, and caused adversity and misfortune in their lives. President Eyring tells us how to avoid contention and how to be a peacemaker and be unified. He said, The great peacemaker, the restorer of unity, is the one who finds a way to help people see the truth they share. That truth they share is always greater and more important to them than their differences. You can help yourself and others to see that common ground if you ask for help from God and then act. He will answer your prayer and help restore peace. To be in tune, then, with our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ, we have to find a way to see the truth we share and work towards peace and unity. A third way the Nephites can teach us how to stay in tune with our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ is to be humble, not prideful. In 4th Nephi we read, And now in this two hundred and first year there began to be among them those who were lifted up in pride, such as the wearing of costly apparel and all manner of fine pearls and of the fine things of the world. And from that time forth they did have their goods and their substance no more common among them. And they began to be divided into classes, and they began to build up churches unto themselves to get gain and began to deny the true Church of Christ. 
For two hundred years the Nephites followed the Savior's teachings and were one with him, with their sound frequencies mirroring his. It was the sin of pride that started the dissonance and eventually led to their destruction. President Ezra Taft Benson, in his first conference address as president of the Church, taught us about pride. Describing it as a very misunderstood sin, he said, Most of us think of pride as self-centeredness, conceit, boastfulness, arrogance, or haughtiness. All of these are elements of the sin, but the heart or core is still missing. The central feature of pride is enmity, enmity toward God, and enmity toward our fellow men. Enmity means hatred toward, hostility to, or a state of opposition. It is the power by which Satan wishes to reign over us. Pride is essentially competitive in nature, our will in competition to God's. The proud cannot accept the authority of God giving direction to their lives. The proud wish God would agree with them. They aren't interested in changing their opinions to agree with God's. Lucky for us, there is an antidote for pride. It is humility. President Benson tells us we can combat pride by being meek and submissive, by having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. When we are humble, we can receive counsel and chastisement, be forgiving, and give selfless service. We can love God, submit our will to His, and put Him first in our lives. President Spencer W. Kimball helps us think about humility by comparing it to a donut. He said we're like the hole in the donut. We would be nothing without the Lord or what is around the hole. Everything around it is dependent on the Lord. Our breath, our brains, our hearing, sight, and locomotion. Without Him, we are nothing. We are just crumbs. When we realize our dependency on Him and are grateful for His help, that is when we are humble. President Kimball uses some great adjectives to describe humility. He says, Humility is gracious, quiet, serene, not pompous, spectacular, nor histrionic. It is subdued, kindly, and understanding, not crude, blatant, loud, or ugly. Its faithful, quiet works will be the badge of its own accomplishments. Richard C. Edgeley, in his 2003 conference address, told of an experience that illustrates the power and blessings of humility. He described a lesson in his high priest quorum meeting where the instructor asked attendees to tell who their hero was and why. Someone named the Savior. Another spoke of Abraham Lincoln. Another mentioned Joseph Smith and still another Gordon B. Hinckley. When it was Brother Edgeley's turn, he chose as his heroes members of his ward who had experienced tragedies and major setbacks in their lives, yet they carried on in humility. They relied on the Lord and not their own abilities to help them through their difficult life experiences. One example of his heroes was that of Ken and Joanne Sweatfield, who for many years had cared for their comatose son with love and patience. Their son Shane had been in a terrible automobile accident just two weeks before he was to leave for his mission. For twenty years his parents attended him, 
never taking a vacation. During the long years of their trial, they remained humble, maintaining a spirit of faith, optimism, and gratitude, never questioning God's purposes. Brother Edgley went on to tell about more of his heroes that did not hold high or prominent callings in the Church, nor were they widely known to the general membership of the Church, but they were all humble and relied on the Lord to help them meet life's challenges. They did not seek position, prominence, or fame, but did the unnoticed, the unspectacular, humbly and righteously. He said, quote, Their humility leads to submissiveness to the Lord's will, and in spite of the difficulties and trials of life, they are able to maintain a sense of gratitude for God's blessings and life's goodness, unquote. The people he described were regular people that were able to combat the prideful natural man and feelings of enmity by being submissive to God and acknowledging their dependence on the Lord. In this, we, like them, can be in harmony with our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. When Jesus visited the Nephites, he commanded them to search the scriptures diligently. He told them to ponder on the things he had said and he taught them how to pray. They obeyed. The scriptures say, And it came to pass that they did do all things, even as Jesus had commanded them. Searching the scriptures and praying helped them be more like Christ and live in peace for two hundred years. When we include this last example from the Nephites in our efforts to be more one with God, we will be more in tune with Him. Why are the scriptures so important that prophets of all ages have taken and continue to take the time to record the word of God, and we are commanded to search them? Daniel L. Johnson gives us the key when he said, One of the primary purposes of the scriptures is to help us know, understand, and become like the Savior. Continually studying the scriptures helps us keep our eyes, minds, and hearts focused on Him. The scriptures bring us to Christ and show us how to be like Him. To get the full benefit of the scriptures, we need to not only search them, but also ponder them and pray about them. These three separate activities go hand in hand. Doing only one of the activities by itself is not enough to move us in the direction we want to go. Doing only one will not reduce the difference between God's and our own frequencies. Take, for example, Nephi. In his history, we learn how he searched, pondered, and prayed. He had a great desire to know the mysteries of God, so he cried unto the Lord. He searched the scriptures. He tells us he pondered them in his heart. He said, For my soul delighteth in the scriptures, and my heart pondereth them. His great knowledge and love of the scriptures allowed him to quote the prophets and use their teachings to teach and preach call his brothers to repentance, and even at times confound them. But more importantly, by searching, pondering, and praying, he was able to become more like the Savior. His experience is very different from that of his older brothers. Laman and Lemuel grew up in the same household as Nephi and were taught the scriptures by their father. Even Nephi read many things unto them which were written in the book of Moses. Yet they were stiff-necked and murmured against their father because they knew not the dealings of God. They had the scriptures, 
They were taught from the scriptures, but they didn't put forth the effort to search, ponder, and pray about them. They, therefore, were not in tune with the Savior. If they had included the companion activities of pondering and praying with their scripture study, perhaps they would have had experiences like those described by Cheryl C. Lant in October 2005. She said of the scriptures, quote, My heart pondereth them, how I love to carry the scriptures with me in my heart. The spirit of what I read rests there to bring me comfort and peace. When we ponder the scriptures in our hearts and let them rest there, it's like they settle there, where they can influence our decisions and actions throughout the day, give us comfort as well as ideas and thoughts. Sister Lant went on to say that when she ponders the scriptures, something happens to her. She said, I have a stronger desire to live close to my Heavenly Father. I long to serve Him. I want to live the principles that I learn in the scriptures. When she adds prayer to the mix, she said, I find that if I pray not only to have a witness of the truthfulness of the scriptures, but also to have the Spirit with me as I read, my sensitivity is heightened. I see ever so much more clearly. I can see where I am in my life and where my Heavenly Father wants me to be. I can understand principles of truth, and I can see how to make the needed changes in my life. I can feel assured that the Lord will help and strengthen me to accomplish the task. Searching, pondering, and praying is hard work and takes practice. We cannot get to be in tune by merely asking or simply reading or just thinking about things. We need to combine all three and work at it. Trying to take the easy way would be like Oliver Cowdery in his efforts to translate the Book of Mormon. The Lord told him, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. To have the blessings promise us when we search, ponder, and pray, we need to do the work. Preparing for the temple dedication gave me the chance to work and practice so that I could offer the Lord my best. And even though my best wasn't perfect, it was a beautiful experience. The gift I was given of being part of a wonderful choir, performing at the temple dedication, and having a special connection with my grandmother have increased my desire to be in tune with my Heavenly Father and Savior. As each of us consider changes we can make in our lives in order to be more like our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ and to have our desires and actions matched with theirs, to be on the same wavelength, let us remember the example of the Nephites who were visited and taught by the Savior. These people received the prophets and stoned them not. They did more than just raise their hand. They loved their prophets. They prayed for them and adhered to their teachings. These people did not allow contention. They dealt justly with each other and were in one, the children of Christ. These people were humble, not prideful. They had no enmity toward God or their fellow men. These people also searched the scriptures, pondered the word of God, and prayed. They understood the importance of the scriptures in helping them know, understand, and become like the Savior by keeping their eyes, minds, and hearts focused on Him. 
These people did the things the Savior asked them to do, and he asks us to do the same. May we be like these righteous Nephites and heed the Savior's commandment when he said, What manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Humble Submission to God, with thoughts from LeGrand R. Curtis, Jr. and Rebecca Schroeder. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.